Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. It is for the week ending April 24th, 2020. This is videocast number 27, podcast number 17. And we've got a lot of great stuff to cover this week. So I'm going to start off as we do each week. I'd like to thank Ellie Terrett and Liz Clayman for having me on the Clayman Countdown yesterday. And we discussed quickly, uh, and you can review it, any of the media stuff I do, you can click on Featured On at HedgeFundTips.com and pull up all the videos and get some of my uh, most recent uh, thoughts on the markets, etc. Uh, but what I was covering there was basically that we were two months behind China in terms of recovery, that they had gone back to uh, you know full rush hour traffic as defined by the GPS um, uh TomTom.com, uh, tom you can pull up all that data, uh, 90 to 95% of employment, uh, pre-pandemic employment, uh, seats in the air stats had doubled uh, in the past two months from the trough in February, 4 million seats to last month, 8 million seats, down from 14.7, but I'm sure April is going to be up quite a bit as well. And really just, uh, you know, she was asking what might America 2.0 look like? And I was just basically saying that, you know, look, we've got now close to $9 trillion with the package that was signed today, the $488 billion package for small business and hospitals and another $25 billion for testing and tracing, et cetera, um, that people may be underestimating the speed at which we can recover uh, once we slowly but surely and safely go back to work as we're starting to see. It's the same in China. China doesn't have any magic drug that we don't have. It's just a slow, steady process as you get over the new cases. And they peaked on February 5th, and we peaked last week. So um, we can follow that same trajectory. And when you couple in the stim stimulus, and uh, it can really start to show up in Q4 and first half of next year. The other thing I mentioned was Ben Bernanke has the best way to look at this. The former Fed chair on TV said, think of it as a natural disaster, like a major hurricane, tornado, earthquake, etc. Not a prolonged contracted downturn. So it's a sharp drop and it can recover quickly if we handle it right. So uh, I think uh, people found that helpful, so take a listen. Thanks to Ellie Terrett and Liz Clayman. Next was uh, One American News Network. A thank you to Greta Wall, the host, and Lindsay Oakley, the producer, for having me on Tuesday. And here I just added a, a couple other points that um, you may want to take a look at. And I went into a lot more with the oil markets, which we're going to go into later. But the point that I put in was... You know, if you've got all this stimulus, you're throwing eight and a half trillion dollars between stimulus aid, the Main Street lending program facility between the Fed and the Treasury of four trillion. Uh, another it's now two and a half trillion dollar um, balance sheet expansion since the summer, another 200 billion this week. Uh, so why are people still worried and why doesn't it feel like things are going to be great? Because we're right in the thick of it. And the analogy that I gave to Greta was that for any of you who race cars, uh, and I'd definitely take a listen if you have time, it's like having nitrous oxide in the tank. So the government, never before in the history of, uh, of the developed world has the government been so proactive. Usually 
the plate falls off the table, it breaks into a thousand pieces, and over the next few years they try to glue it back together, but it's never quite the same. Um, that's what we did in 08, that's what they did in uh, 2000, 2001, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So 73, 74, uh, 1930s, et cetera. Here, they've gotten ahead of the curve in a dramatic way to cushion the blow, put a trampoline out so when the plate falls, it bounces back. But the stimulus I'm talking about, eight and a half trillion, nine trillion to fill a two trillion dollar economic contraction. Um, we're sitting in the race car at the starting line waiting for the green light. And what is that green light is going to be demand coming back into the economy. And how does demand come back into the economy? It's when you slowly but surely start to reopen states based on safety and based on meeting the criteria and the guidelines in the Reopen America plan, which you can view at the American Enterprise Institute website, AEI.org. It was released. Um, so until you turn that ignition on and you step on the gas, i.e. we go to work, all that money and stimulus doesn't mean much. But the second you get off the starting line and you start to get out of the gate and people slowly go back, you get halfway down the track and boom, you hit that red button for the nitrous packs in the back and the car just goes bananas. And that's when you see these cars take off and do, you know, a nine second quarter mile. Uh, and I think that's what we're going to see happen. It's going to be a little slow off the gate, you know, one state at a time that has not had have not had major cases. And then slowly but surely, it's going to be like a, like an orchestra. All the instruments are going to start to play together. And by that fourth quarter of this year, first half of next year, all of a sudden that nitrous button's going to hit. All that six, seven, eight trillion dollars of stimulus and liquidity. And by the way, we'll probably get a trillion dollar infrastructure package on top of it uh, for this, you know, cherry on the top of the Sunday because both parties want that. Um, that nitrous button will hit. And I think what people are underestimating is the impact of that stimulus once everything starts playing together, once they're halfway out of the, down the track and that red button hits and the velocity money comes in and you have that extra six, seven, eight trillion dollars that just starts circulating in the economy. We may see growth levels, not 2020, but 2021, 22, well beyond what they could have been had this not happened. And I know that's really impossible to see right now, but I'm just gonna ask you, borrow my glasses for the time being, because um, I, I, I think people are gonna be surprised with what can happen once we get through this hard part. And that's not to, uh, minimize the deaths and the sadness and the tragedy and and all the sadness coming and from the front lines and the people doing the hard work, the medical workers and the people at the grocery store and the truck drivers and all the people taking care of us until we can take care of ourselves. Um, but I think everyone's going to benefit and you're not going to see like this a disparity like Liz was talking about potentially she was quoting from an article where it's just a small group do, does well and everyone does poorly you know some people are upset they see the stock market doing better but the economy is doing worse and that's normal okay so the economy will lag the stock market the stock market will start to discount that as we get better treatments, as we get better antivirals, as we get better results, stock market starts to sniff that out as one state goes back to work, two states go back to work. But until everyone's back to work, you're not going to see it in the economy. And then over time, the economy is going to just start to rip. And, and that's going to be a function of all that pent up stimulus 
and energy in the nitrous canister waiting for that red button to hit a few, you know, four, six, seven months out when everyone's really back at work and things start to act uh, normally. And then that stimulus just takes us to the finish line uh, for the trophy. So um, thanks Greta and Lindsay for having me on OAN. Uh, Want to thank Sriashi Sinyal uh, this morning gave me a call. She was wondering why the market was up. And uh, Nividita C from Reuters, uh, thanks so much for including me today. And my quote here, you can just you can read it when you have time. Uh, we're past the peak and slowly but surely all the states that have not had major case, cases will gradually reopen and the market's taking that as a signal that demand is going to come back. So that's part of it. The other part of it, which I said was the $488 billion stimulus pack um, passing. And I have to say, I'm sure both sides got goodies that weren't uh, directly tied to coronavirus, but I'm totally impressed, um, you know, quarterbacked by Mnuchin and the administration and Kudlow, but how both sides are working together and working together in record time. My hat's off to the Democrats, my hat's off to the Republicans. They're doing what needs to be done in a, in a quicker uh, than anyone would think historically possible manner. So that's, that's gonna be a big deal and that's what's gonna help us halfway down the track. Once the nitrous gets going, it's, it's all in place. So thank you for that. Now let's move on to the meat and potatoes. This week's article, uh, research article, was called The Kanye West Drive Slow Stock Market and Sentiment Results. I had to shift gears a little bit because for the last three weeks, everyone by now knows I'm a country fan, uh, and that's all I've been using. We used Rodney Atkins. We used uh, a couple other um, famous country singers. And this week, <coughs> we used... Kanye West song, Drive Slow. Now this has explicit lyrics, so don't play it if you're easily offended, um, but it also has a good beat to it. So, you know, if you can drown out the lyrics, go for it. If not, just uh, the following lyrics are appropriate after a 30% bounce trough to our current peak off the March 23 lows, the, the S&P's bounced uh, max 30%. And the lyrics in the song that apply are drive slow, homie. If you're riding around the city with nowhere to go, drive slow, homie. So riding around the city with nowhere to go is kind of this little trading range that we've been in here consolidating these fast gains. And we had talked in past weeks how this market might not let anyone in. And the further we got away from it, the, the lower probability we'd retest or blow through. And that's certainly proven to be the case so far. Okay, that's not to say, uh, you know, you, you uh, declare victory. Uh, you just take it day by day. And if the facts change, you change your mind. But that's where we are today. So Drive Slow Homie is related to, and we're going to get into it, um, which sectors have led and which sectors have lagged and the different weights in the indices. So as a precursor to that, as a context, we've already covered the nitrous oxide analogy that I talked with Greta about on Tuesday. So we're going to skip that part. But Ellen Chang, she's a great writer who writes for Kiplinger, U.S. News and World Report, and TheStreet.com asked me uh, whether this year the old sell in May and go away maxim would hold or not this year. And my response was, 
I'm, I'm going to read some of it and then I'll ad lib the rest. But while on average this strategy of sell in May works over time, that the data proves it out. Okay, over time, if you'd uh, um, you know bought at the end of October and held till the uh, end of April, your returns were orders of magnitude larger than uh, the period between May 1st and October 31st, where many of the steeper crashes had happened over time on average. <clears throat> That's the good news. The bad news is you can't realistically do this in a taxable account because you will lose more after you pay taxes and you can't perfectly time it and et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, it's just a, a exercise in seasonality. And what I pointed to as to why it may not work this year in a material way is because there are a number of factors that are different. And the, the thing that I pointed to was the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey, which came out last week. It's a survey of about 200 managers managing about a half a trillion dollars. And this month's result from last week found that we managers were holding the highest cash levels since March of 2009, which marked the bottom of the financial crisis. So um, the S&P 500 hit 666 at that point, and, um, and that was basically the bottom of the great financial crisis. So the fact that fear levels rose that high in this survey is usually used as a contraindicator. Furthermore, if you click here on the April Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey results, um, you'll also see that their gauge got down to a zero, which is a, an extreme version of a contrary buy indicator. And that's part of the reason we've seen a 30% bounce in the last few weeks. People were dramatically off sides. And you can go through this if you didn't uh, last week and see some of the core findings. So the other aspect as we get a little more granular is that not only did they have the highest cash levels, but what was invested was in defensive sectors like utilities, staples, and the biggest two positions being cash and treasuries. The most underweight sectors were cyclicals, including banks, industrials, materials, and that also includes energy. So you could just read here, long cash, healthcare staples, utilities, followed by tech and bonds. And we're going to go into tech in, in just a little bit. Uh, and then very short or underweight energy, materials, industrials, United Kingdom, banks, and the Eurozone. Here's the cash levels you can see here on the chart. And the thing that I found very interesting about <coughs> them being so underweight um, cyclicals and namely banks is last month we found out that the last time they were this underweight banks was July of 2016. So I just decided to chart it out for everyone. This is the XLF and this is where banks were the last time they were this underweight and they nearly doubled in the next 18 months. Again, that's not to say that's necessarily gonna happen right now, but uh, you can see here, managers underweight banks again, and um, this has been a laggard sector. So this is not one of the sectors, and in my view, again, this is opinion, not advice. 
see the terms on the top of the website, do your own homework, and you got to know your own situation or talk with your own financial advisor, etc. But um, this is not where we're going to drive slow. But where we are going to drive slow, meaning take it easy, is those groups that have um, moved up quite a bit off these bottoms. And we're going to talk about why in just a second. So the other thing that we covered early in this uh, podcast video cast is that the key difference this time is the magnitude which we covered and the speed of the stimulus and aid. So we can't underestimate what can happen moving forward as demand. Again, I'm going to go back to the D word, not the one that you're hearing on TV all the time, depression. I'm going back to the D word, demand. As people go back to work, demand's going to pick up and the stimulus is going to be like rocket fuel. Uh, but it's going to take a few months and it's going to look worse before it looks better. And that's just the way, it's, way it has to go. So um, this next chart that I want to talk about um, is the amount of people expecting a recession is as high as it was again in March of 2009, right at the bottom. The news flash that I pointed out is we already have gotten a recession, more more likely than not. And by the time the recession has been declared, we'll all be, already be recovering because that will be a look in the rearview mirror and the market will have started to dramatically discount the future growth. And we'll talk about that in earnings in just a few minutes. But so long as everyone's talking about recession and you hear on different news media outlets depression uh, and scares everyone out of their savings at the wrong time, um, we can continue to climb the wall of worry. Uh, the other big tail risk that managers are afraid of, which is legitimate because you'll see it in different parts of Asia, we saw it in Singapore, is a second wave of coronavirus. And you can see this chart here from the uh, Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey. Uh, and you can track through time what people have been worried about all these different years. And you'll be like, oh, yeah, that wasn't as bad as I thought. Oh, yeah, that, that worked out okay. Oh, yeah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So usually the fear is greater than the re realization. Um, now, the next point that relates back to Kanye's song, Drive Slow, Shauna Smith of Yahoo Finance, I was on her show Friday, she asked a question about market breadth. Are you worried that... Um, when I brought up the Bank of America fund manager survey, she knew about it and she said, well, yeah, but what about the point that they made about uh, five stocks representing, you know, 21, 22% of the weighting in the S&P 500? And I said, as demand comes back and as we move out of this, the breadth will widen and, and more and more money will move into cyclicals. And by the way, you know, one day doesn't make a trend. But over the last few weeks, you've seen a lot of up days where small caps have been leading, which no one would expect because, the narrative is they're the most vulnerable and they're all going to go out of business. And I think people are <coughs> overlaying what they see with restaurants, hospitality, and leisure to all business. And it's not a fair comparison because restaurants, hospitality, and leisure are front-facing, travel-related, not necessary businesses in the short term. They'll be very necessary as demand comes back. Um, but, you know... Uh, your dry cleaners and your nail cleaners and your spa and your local restaurant are not part of the small cap index. And um, 
seeing today in particular the relative strength in regional banks and banks outperforming the major indices followed by um, small cap stocks outperforming the Nasdaq, S&P and Dow today shows a sign that you know fear is slowly starting to thaw. Now, to answer Shauna's question, which was a brilliant question, uh, the last time that we saw this type of concentration in predominantly tech or in five stocks was 2000. So this is what it looked like at the uh, beginning of this year, first quarter, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, five stocks making up 22% of the weight in the S&P 500. And... You know, we don't have a tremendous amount of examples, so we can't say pound the table for sure. This is a guaranteed rotation out of them because a lot of people will argue that the world has changed and this is just the way it's going to be forever. Just invest in healthcare and tech and forget the rest. And uh, there may that could be true. Look, I, I mean, I will say one one thing is 100 percent certain if rates stay low for a long time. Uh, growth should continue to outperform value, okay? And uh, if you look at a lot of the folks that made fortunes, the, the value guys, the, the uh, Lee Coopermans, Mario Gabelli, that whole crew, the, the whole Buffett crew, uh, a lot of them made extreme fortunes in the 70s. Even though the markets didn't do much, rates were high, and that's when value outperformed. So... The people saying, you know, it's different this time, they may in fact be right. But I would consider taking a look at the other side of the trade when the boat is this crowded. And this is where I want to drive a little more slowly in these names that have really ripped off the bottom in the short term because the weight is just tremendous here. And if and when we do get a rotation into some of the more cyclical names, I'm, I'm liking banks. We'll talk a little bit about energy. Obviously, that's been a train wreck for the last three months, but a, a lot of things are shaping up to um, potentially be constructive over the next uh, 12 to 36 months, and we'll talk about those. But um, industrials, banks, materials, so out of tech and growth, or at least slow down on tech and growth, and add some cyclicals in value before the cycle changes. Because like I said, when they declare the recession, it will be rear view mirror. It will have already happened. We're probably through half halfway through the recession to be, to be candid with you. And, and we'll know in six or nine months, but by then the market will have discounted 2021 and 2022. So these are the areas where we want to drive a little more slowly off a 30% bounce off the bottom. And, and, um, pay attention to some of the cyclicals and value on a name-by-name -name basis. And that's where we were aggressively adding uh, in mid-March in our notes and in early April. And then we shifted gears to high-yield credit, things that haven't recovered quite as much, but we'll, we'll talk about that. So uh, there was a nice anecdote here about uh, on Wednesday, and this was the embodiment of the above-mentioned chart. The richest person in the world who made his money in tech, Bill Gates and his wife, Melinda, bought an oceanfront mansion in Del Mar, California. That's outside San Diego. For It was listed for 48. They talked her down to 43 because they needed a deal. Uh, but they bought it from 
Madeline Pickens, who was the wife of recently deceased Texas oil billionaire T. Boone Pickens. So T. Boone, you know, has taken his hits in the last few years, as has everyone in the oil oil patch. Uh, and um, so his wife sold, sold his uh, widow sold off this mansion, and it was interesting to see because a friend of mine who runs one of the top small cap funds in the country emailed me and goes, maybe this is a sign, uh, you know, tech is buying, uh, tech is at its peak, you know, with all this weight again, back to the 2000 levels. Uh, and by the way, for those of you who study history and we'll cover into it, like from here to here was like the biggest bull market ever in the history of the energy sector. So, so here Buffett's buying, this play, uh, not Buffett, uh, Gates is buying this place from an ex oil billionaire. Uh, he's riding on the top, he's on the top of the moon, and uh, the oil guys are hurting like crazy, and he's buying this. So, what I said was, you know, maybe five years from now, and we're gonna try to make a case for it, and we're not holding our breath. Um, maybe the future oil billionaires from the next five years are gonna be buying these houses back from tech. Uh, unicorn billionaires, not, I mean, Gates is always going to be probably the richest guy in the world for a long time, or maybe Bezos will overtake him. But there's a lot of these unicorn guys that are billionaires on paper that have houses like this. And maybe some of the oil and natural gas people will be buying it from them in three to five years. And you're like, how can you say that? Fossil fuels are dead. Da -da 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 -da. Okay. Well, um, here's what the covers of The Economist looked like when the last time we were here, okay? Tech was ruling the world. Industrials, materials, banks, any value cyclical was totally out of favor. While the whole market was rallying, these things were declining. As a matter of fact, this was also a time when people were uh, writing articles, has Warren Buffett lost it <coughs> because he didn't have, he wasn't invested in these tech stocks and he was in all these value stocks. And then in the next five years, he crushed everyone as these stocks, the NASDAQ collapsed 89%. So um, I'm not calling for that type of situation, but I do think we're going to see a more balanced rotation out of such a, a steep concentration here. Um, so this is what it looked like. The economist said in March 99, before the peak, we're drowning in oil. And then by the time uh, the NASDAQ had crashed and it was all over the end of the oil age. So that was the end of the oil age right here. This was the end of the oil age, and this is the oil index, oil companies, etc. And as you can see here, it went from 400 to 1600, so 4x, 300% return in five years. So right at the end of the oil age, October 2003 to first quarter of 2008, the end of the oil age was a Forex, four bagger for the indices, and obviously many names were up 10 and 20x during this period. Um, this is max pessimism. It's the same type of things we're hearing now. Glut, it will never be served. We've got all this oil on ships now in storage, which is true. Some on rail. Um, anywhere they can store it, they're storing it, etc. What else was happening when Basically, five stocks were 20% of the S&P 500 in 2000. Microsoft, Cisco, Intel. Okay, so you had GE and Walmart, but it was predominantly a tech boom, and they were all in the NASDAQ, so that's why this is the S&P 500, but leaving that aside. 
Um, banks were also out of favor. What, what was Buffett owning when everyone said he had lost his touch? He owned a lot of banks. He owned banks, uh, some industrials, etc. And same thing that happened here. Tech was on top of the world. Banks were in the gutter and they over doubled over that same period. They didn't do as well as energy, but they doubled. So there was a shift out of tech and what was hot to what was not hot. Okay, so what's hot now? Again, tech. What's not hot? Materials, industrials, financials, etc. Banks in particular. Some financials are still hot because they call themselves tech companies. Um, okay. Next, this is just the value to growth index, and we kind of covered this as it relates to rates. Um, so as you can see, this is Dow Jones large cap value to Dow Jones large cap growth. Probably not, there's probably a better growth to value ratio out there, but it's at an extreme low level again. It's just been trending down. Growth has been crushing value just as rates have been declining. Um, and in this instance, it, you had rates starting to rise, certainly from 2003, and that's when you saw these type of stocks do well, banks, energy, etc. And it, it, people are like... How can this guy be thinking about rates increasing when we just hit zero? We're going down, not up. <clears throat> well, um, that's, that's, a, that's a reasonable question, but keep in mind what I talked about. That nitrous oxide, when that gets into the system and people are back to work six, nine, 12 months from now and things start to boom and growth starts to come back, rates go up with it. So um, very hard to see right now, but this is a forward-looking podcast video cast so you got to look through my glasses for a little while um now what could what could be the change besides the stimulus and maybe you know we don't know what's going to be the catalyst but what we do know is that both parties are interested in doing infrastructure and that as i said might be the cherry on the sunday maybe one to two trillion dollar infrastructure package before the end of the year in which case um, the core beneficiaries would be materials, infrastructure, industrials, um, uh, et cetera. So start to think about that. The other thing that we may be seeing, uh, you saw the most popular article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday was about people moving out to the suburbs, no longer wanting to be in the cities. That trend was happening just because the largest percentage of our population, millennials, is at the age now where they're doing housing and family formation. And we saw big numbers before the black swan called coronavirus. Um, and then they got derailed for the last couple of months. But I think they're going to be accelerated. Whether we'll get a baby boom or not, you know, people have been inside for the last two months. Maybe we can only hope. Uh, there was some. There were some articles that the world is running low on condoms, so that might help. That's that's good for growth in capitalism. Uh, so babies and people moving out to the suburbs could also lead to more housing formation and big secular growth for the next decade, decade, decade and a half. So now. Um, so again, you know, looking more at cyclicals, um, banks, et cetera, opportunities that have lagged, lightening up or driving a little more slowly on this high concentration that is just at real extreme levels of exposure. You know, I can think of the catalyst of what causes a move into cyclicals in value. I can't dramatically think of a catalyst that takes a ton of money out of 
Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, and Facebook. But it's it's always those instances when you can't see it when the probabilities increase of that happening. You know, where where are the marginal buyers for these stocks that are now 22% of the weight of the S&P? Now, other people would say, well, look, you know, it, the change is passive investing. People are putting money into their, their thing automatically every single month. It just goes into the indexes. It just keeps driving the weights up, et cetera, et cetera. We'll see. I mean, that's possibly true, but I do know there are a lot of people that sold out at bad points in time here in the last couple of months. So uh, maybe that trend will possibly shift as well. We will see. Um, Okay, shorter term view. This was good news. (coughs) The bullish percent finally dropped down to 24% of the um, American Association of Individual Investors market sentiment. So I was worried this whole process because as the market crashed 35%, peaked to trough, the bullish percentage did not get flushed out to an extreme. Extreme is, you know, low to mid 20s. So we kind of got there this week, which I was happy to see. The bearishness did get close to an extreme uh, right at the week of the bottom. It got over 50. That's a good number. We're back there. So this is nice to see. Even after a rebound, there's a lot of fear in the market, which means we can climb higher um, on balance. You know, it's not going to be a straight line up, obviously. Or we could be in a range, consolidate the gains for a while before making the next move up. Uh, So that was nice to see it move down to these levels. Uh, Fear and greed flatlined week to week, 41%. And this is interesting. The National Association of Active Investment Managers, it really hasn't jumped. The market has bounced 30%. And uh, these guys are behind the eight ball. So they, while they moved up from 26% to 28%, as you can see, they're going to have to chase up, chase up, chase up, chase up, chase up, or they're going to miss it. And they're going to be behind the benchmark after underperforming last year as well. So expect panic buying into this over time. You know, it doesn't necessarily all have to happen in the next week or two. But, um, you know, maybe you consolidate a bit. Maybe you have a rotation out of some of the uh, over-owned names into some of the under-owned names. And that's why I was very interested to see the small caps and banks outperforming everything today. That was a really interesting tell. Uh, Not a tell, but signal to keep an eye on. So the message this week was similar. Um, You know, you can look at our past notes on the right-hand side of the site under commentary. Categories are listed here. You can click on commentary or sentiment. Those are our weekly articles. You can see all through mid-March to early April, we were buying the highest quality equities that had dropped, you know, more than the indices, but were high-quality franchises like Wells Fargo, uh, Pfizer, Coca-Cola, you know, Coke was down 40%, Pfizer was down 30%, JP Morgan was down 40%, Wells Fargo was down 52%, Cisco was down 35%. So we're buying the highest quality names, and you'll see in our webcasts and podcasts and our articles. But we shifted uh, about over two weeks ago in early April uh, from stocks after they had rebounded 20 some odd percent. Um, rather than adding more there, we started to look at selective securities within the high yield index, distressed credit, that haven't recovered to the same extent as the equities. And what that enabled us to do was go to slightly lower quality names um, equity wise 
because we were moving up higher in the capital structure. So for instance, if the company doesn't make it, um, you get paid first is, is really what it comes down to. And some of these bonds have dropped you know, 30, 40, even as high as 60% just because of COVID. They were, they, they were trading close to, or above in some cases par because rates are so low prior to you know late february when i think when the nba canceled the thing is when it hit everyone this was real but uh so that's where we continue to focus we add on red down days and we sit on our hands on green days the same thing we were doing on equities high quality equities all through um march and early april so the next thing i want to cover and i don't want to get into a big um you know, discussion on energy because, you know, we started building our position in exploration and production in October and December, and then the black swan came. And that's, you know, up to 12% of our portfolio. We've added down a little over 12%. We've added down into this black swan weakness because we're looking at this from a three to five year view. So while my poker buddies every week in the last three weeks, while we're playing poker on Zoom instead of at our friend's conference room in town, uh, they've been sure to make fun of me uh, for my energy bet every single week, even though it's only 12% of the portfolio and I'm positive on the year exclusive of it, uh, they, they're sure to rub it in. But this is the game that I'm playing for is this. So if I got smashed a little here or here, I really don't give a you know what. Uh, this is the game I'm playing for. And I'm not saying we're necessarily going to get this game. This was driven by emerging markets, which still have a strong underpin, but China has less of a demographic demographic favorability than it did here. But you've got Indonesia coming up, Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So even if you got half of this, it's going to make a ton of money. So let's over time. And I know everyone wants a result in five minutes, but for the big plays where you make 90% of your money, it takes months if not years and you got to have that patience and you got to buy into the weakness you know if your thesis is sound you know and you do all the work you can uh then you got to play the game and you got to take a long view so um let's go through some of the things that have changed since the black swan um and uh let's see here so a couple of points i want to get into Number one is okay. So off the off the lows here after the black swan, everything collapsed. The larger names, the integrateds, have rebounded sixty two point nine percent off the lows since March twenty ninth. The exploration and production names have rebounded sixty seven point zero eight percent, and services have rebounded sixty five. 0.7%. Well, people are like, well, who cares if they fell 50%? Well, the point is oil's been going down and they're getting a bid. I like when things go up in the face of bad news. Uh, it's usually a leading indicator, not always, but usually. So if there's a message, if you're a newer person, there are a lot of professionals on this podcast. So, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know probably with all of this, but, um, but for people that are gaining experience when a stock or a sector or something starts to rally on bad news or a stock market rallies on bad news, we're getting all 
bad economic news lately, all these large unemployments, and that's what's upsetting people in the short term. The market's going up and the news is getting worse. You know, unemployment claims are rising, et cetera, et cetera. But that's good news when something rallies on bad news. It's usually indicative of a more sang more uh, positive outlook and more positive results moving forward. And this will move in fits and starts. And who knows if we have to go back down and retest it. But um, so no one could could predict, you know, the majority of the developed world sitting home for two months and that kind of demand destruction. But I believe oil markets are going to rebalance over the next 12 to 18 months. And here's why. Uh, you know, by the way, um, Lee Cooperman was on CNBC, uh, I think Wednesday in the morning, Squawk Box, talking about the exact same thing. And I'm a big fan of Lee's, obviously. Um, a lot of respect for him. So you should Google that. Go to CNBC.com and type in Lee Cooperman and pick the one from this week, the most recent video, and watch what he was saying. But here are some things that I put together. Um, obviously the old maxim, low prices, low oil prices, cure low oil prices. Here's why. So everyone was asking this week, what happened at, you know, how did oil go negative? All my poker buddies, as they were making fun of me for my 12% position, uh, you know, were all telling me how they were locking in their low oil, blah, blah, blah. So the reason that the WTI contract went negative is the opposite, kind of a reverse short squeeze. So in a short squeeze, you get these rip your face off rallies off the lows because the shorts are, there's so many shorts and the short interest is so great that they all scramble when the trend changes, they all scramble to buy a limited supply of stock that's available and you see these monster bounces. In some sense, you could say what happened with XLE, XOP and OIH. Uh, uh, in the last few weeks. So that's a short squeeze. That's why you've had these monster rallies with the general market rallying 30%. They're, they're outperforming, they're double outperformance here. So 2x outperformance. <clears throat> so this was the opposite. Here you had speculators that were long going into expiration, thought, thinking they would be able to lay off the paper to the commercials who would take delivery because they had the use. But the problem is that the storage in Cushing, Oklahoma, which is not representative of the global market or Brent prices, um, is, is probably two weeks away from max capacity. So the fear was if I take delivery of the oil, <coughs> there may, may be no place to put it in Cushing uh, when it's delivered. So therefore, the commercials were not buyers and some of the speculators got smoked. Now, um, a few people emailed me, did you hear of any funds blowing up? Actually, there was a press release um, who an old friend of mine, McCray Sykes, he works over at Gabelli, posted on LinkedIn. Uh, it was all retail traders that got flushed. In Interactive Brokers, it was $90 million of losses on futures contracts. So that's what happened there. And... Um, so basically that's how prices got negative and uh, that's what happened. But if you look out at the, on the forward curve, even the September 2020 contract is trading over 25 bucks. And if you look a year out, it's trading over 31 bucks, uh, June 21. So going back to the D word that we started this podcast video cast with, which is demand, 
that's going to come back as states reopen. And how do we know? Well, China, it, we're two months behind China. Their peak cases were February 5th. Ours were last week. Their trough oil demand was 10 million barrels a day in February. Uh, it's expected now in April to be at around 12 million barrels a day, down from their peak of 13.7. Their rush hour traffic you can see on the pollution maps and the GPS maps is now pre-pandemic levels. Their seats in the air, which is domestic air travel, is up from 4 million trough in uh, February to 8 million in March, down from 14.7 seats in the air. So they don't have any magic drug that we don't have. It just takes time to slowly op slowly and safely, once you get over the curve, as we are, uh, open the areas that are least affected and then slowly work your way back to the epicenter. In China, it was Wuhan. In the United States, it was New York City. So we're going to have a similar demand in recovery. That's going to help oil. What else is happening? <clears throat> well, President Trump has talked about filling the Strategic Petroleum Reserve forever. Uh, maybe they'll finally get it done, or they started to. 75 million barrels. Uh, that will help to soak up some supply. But historically, in 2009 and 2016, the biggest bidders at low prices below 30 were, or in the 30s, were the Chinese. And the Chinese, in recent weeks, directed, the central government directed the agencies to fill up their equivalent of the strategic petroleum reserve. The difference between theirs and ours is they had they have much more capacity. So they were at 900 million barrels of 1.15 billion barrels of capacity and they've been directed to fill it up. So that's 215 million barrels that no one's talking about as well as the 75 million barrels of the US. So round numbers around 300 million barrels. That's going to help soak up a bunch. But the most important thing that people forgot about, and the reason they forgot about it is because you're not seeing the effects of it, and the re is because it hasn't started yet, which is the OPEC Plus agreement, which everyone says, a oh, big deal, you're going to cut 10% uh, of production or 9.7 million barrels a day for a couple of months. That's not the deal. The deal is it's two years of cuts Two years of cuts. This is a big deal. It's 9.7 million barrels a day for May, 9.7 million barrels a day for June. Then after June, from June 1st, 2020 to December 31st, till the end of the year, it's going to be 7.6 million barrels a day every single day until the end of this year. And then for 2020, January 1st, uh, all the way to April, I'm sorry, from January 1st, 2021 to April of 2022, so a year and a quarter after that, it's going to be 5.6 million barrels a day of cuts. And what's interesting about this and the stimulus and everything that's happening, all of these decisions are being made when there's no demand zero demand people are sitting in their houses and their apartments not able to leave if anyone's filled up the tank of gas uh in the last month send me an email and i don't know i'll send you some gift or i i don't know what to tell you i mean who's filled up their gas in the last two months so there's zero demand but guess what we're reopening and their cuts are beginning in six, seven days. Now, there were things this week where they said, maybe we'll start early. Okay, start early. It at this point, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, um, but their cuts will begin on May 1st 
as demand is coming back, we're seeing 2 million barrel a day increase already in China. Um, and we're going to start seeing it country by country by country. And in the U.S. is going to start to pick up um, just as demand is going to come back supply is going to be cut and it's not going to be cut for two minutes it's going to be cut for um basically two years okay and that is huge 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 so uh that's something that i think people are underestimating and finally take a look at this guys the rig count as of today is now down to 378 rigs in 2014 at the peak, it was at 1,600 rigs. Guys, this is works on a lagged effect, okay? Um, the biggest worry we're going to have 24 months from now is not negative cash prices in Cushing. It's going to be whether or not we're hitting $60 or $80 a barrel again, and we've got to sell off our strategic petroleum reserves to keep the price down. That's what it's going to come down to because you can't turn it on as quickly as you can turn it off. Some you can, but on balance, that's number one. And number two, the chickens are really going to come home to roost next year. If you look at the investment, five, we've had five years of low capital investment in the oil industry, and these projects are coming offline in 2021, and there's nothing to replace them because there's been no investment. So, um, so in the short term, it looks darkest. If you take the long view, I can't wait to be at my poker games two years out and um, we'll see who's laughing about the oil trade. So anyway, you take it one day at a time. You can never be 100% confident because if you were, you'd have 100% of your money in it. So um, it's always a balance. It's always reason. And you can always accept, you can always be absolutely flat out wrong. In the short term, we're wrong on that small portion of our capital. And in the long term, we're going to, we believe we're going to be very, very right in a major way. So, um, so that's, that's the game. The other thing that's happening um, with regard to oil is Secretary Mnuchin is looking to, this is out today, yesterday. Um, Mnuchin Way's lending program for struggling oil companies. So that'll help some of the producers stick around. And, but they're still underinvested for five years. So that will really be felt and seen in 2021. The question is, when does the market start to discount that? And I think the market starts to discount that once they see what percentage of the small players are going to be shaken out. And we've always, since the beginning of our thesis in October, buying a basket of uh, E&P names, said that we expect 15% of these companies to go bankrupt over the next few years. And that's probably going to be accelerated. But what's left are going to be up two, three, five, and some some even 10x. There's no question about that. I thought it was interesting today. Like, it's, it's kind of a foregone conclusion. People feel that Chesapeake is going to go bankrupt. And uh, they put in a poison pill today because they don't want someone to take over the stock. When no one is even thinking there's going to be a stock, they're putting in a poison pill. So either they know something we don't or there's some other strategy. But the stock was up like 35%, I think, today <coughs> on that announcement because I think it just surprised everyone because no one expected there to be a stock to uh, take over. It would just be the debt holders fighting for the scraps. So um, funny how those things work out. Next, um, remdesivir. So we got the bad news because the Chinese had some report. Uh, they, they aborted a study of 200-something people, 250 people, that didn't get enough su subscribers because they were already over their case curve and there weren't enough severe patients. So the study was aborted, and yet 
there was something published on the WHO website that DFT got a hold of that said that remdesivir was ineffective, which makes absolutely no sense because we've already done two studies in the US. The skeptics say that, well, we didn't have a control group. In other words, there was no placebo group. But the results were in the bad study that people were skeptical about for uh, the New England Journal of Medicine on April 10th, you had 68% clinical improvement. And the most recent test last week, which had 125 people on remdesivir, severe cases, the fever curve dropped immediately. They were off ventilators in one day, and almost all of them were released from the hospital in less than a week when they thought that the course of medication would take 10 to 12 days. They left after a week because they were better. So give or take 120 something out of 125 got those results. Um, so we're gonna get more data on that at the end of April and then we'll get control trial results at the end of May. Uh, so I think more likely than not, they locked the data last, last Thursday, they locked the data on a 400 person study with the remdesivir, that's usually a good sign, um, which means you could see a fast track in the next, you know, four to six weeks uh, for potential fast track approval at the FDA for use in COVID-19. It's, it's being used off label as is hydroxychloroquine. Um, uh, if you know doctors on the front line in New York, which I do and I talk to them, that's the first thing that they get when they come in if they don't have a heart problem. And you've seen since April 2nd, uh, the hospitalization to intubation rate has just fallen off a cliff. And that's the day that they got the doses. Now, you could say it's just a coincidence and I could say, fine, that's a coincidence. But why would they put out a notice today saying um, don't use hydroxychloroquine unless you're in a hospital. So they want people to be monitored. Why? Because of what everyone knows. 15% of the population can't use it if they have pre-existing heart conditions. We know that. It's a known. And if you don't have heart conditions, you need to get an EKG to make sure that you're not getting an adverse reaction to it. So we'll know more on that. It may be a complete flop, but it may also work. Uh, want to thank... Um, uh, Manas... Mishra, who is a reporter at the at Reuters, who helped me with this this morning, and she gave me this site, clinicaltrials.gov. It has all of the clinical trials here. So, so there are tons of trials going on right now for hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine. You could also just type in the drug uh, remdesivir, and you know, you got the Fuji drug um, in Japan, you've got Invermectin in the US. So there are all these types of drugs that are going through trials and you can see the ones that are uh, completed, terminated, suspended, active not recruiting, recruiting, uh, enrolling by invitation, completed, etc. So you type in the drug, you type in what criteria you want and you get every single study and what's going on. Um, so, this one was for Plaquenil. Um, you could type in rem remdesivir. You could type in whatever drugs you think, plasma, blood plasma stuff, clinicaltrials.gov, and get that information. So thank you for that help. Um, next, we are moving on quickly to the... Fed balance sheet this week went up to 6.6 .6 trillion. So that's about two and a half trillion since last summer. 
uh, 200 billion this week alone, and that was in mortgage and mortgage-backed securities and treasuries. So that's helped the mortgage-backed REITs um, and some of the property companies. And that's a good thing because when we go back to work, we'll have places to go. <laughs> that's 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 a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, okay, and oh, this week. So we did the balance sheet, clinical trials. Ah, I put on the bottom of every email for those of you who are on my list that we were gonna start something called Ask Me Anything where you could just send me questions and I'd cover it at the end of the podcast video cast. And I got an email from Robert D. I won't say his name. He says, hello, sir. I want, sir, I've never been called sir. Am I getting that old? Okay. I want to thank you for all these articles you send me. I'm from Romania, and at this point, I'm trying to learn all kinds of stuff about hedge funds. In my country, we don't have many financial institutions. I hope one day I'd be one of the greatest hedge fund managers from Eastern Europe. I hope so, too. It takes work, but uh, he goes, please send me some tips for beginners. Best regards. So, um, Robert, great question, and here was my answer. Uh, Robert, glad you're enjoying the content. Uh, my best tip is to read this book three to five times. Here's the book, The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. You can find this on the site, guys, and um, just put it in the search bar here, Warren Buffett or Intelligent Investor. This is Warren Buffett's favorite book. And this is the most important book, I think, as far as a foundation to get you started. <laughs> read it three to five times. If it doesn't resonate with you right away, this is probably not the game for you, but if you do read it and a light bulb goes on, you may want to do this for the rest of your life. And that's what happened to me and uh, I'm sure countless other people. So that was my tip for Ask Me Anything for Robert from D from Romania. And then the second part of that tip was read every single annual letter Warren Buffett has ever written. It doesn't matter what strategy you go into. You don't have to become a value investor. You might be a shorter term trader. You might be a... Um, private equity person, you might be um, a commodities trader, but it's just like n no one phrases and explains things in a better way than Warren Buffett. So I just told him, uh, as many of my colleagues and I have done, read every single annual letter that Warren Buffett has ever written. And if he does these two things, intelligent investor, every single letter Warren Buffett has ever written, uh, that's the starting point. And then if he's wanting to do the game, he'll read more and more and learn more and more. I hope that helps people. Uh, for this, you just go to BerkshireHathaway.com or Google Berkshire Hathaway Annual Letters, and they're all free. You can download them and read them for free. The second Ask Me Anything question was from Dan D. from the United States uh, on the day that the WTI cash contract went negative at expiration. This was earlier in the week. He said, hey, Tom, why is XOP up yesterday and today with oil way down? And I replied, uh, Dan, look at the forward curve. So while the forward curve, while the in the short term, it was negative because commercials wouldn't take it because they had nowhere to store it. If you look three months out, um, it was $25 a year out, it's $30 and change. Uh, that was just an aberration in short-term storage. So um, hope that helps for Dandy. If you have questions for next week, send them, reply to any email, ask me anything. I'll try to do two or three each week. 
Finally, uh, let's just go through some earnings stuff. The other thing is that's coming in is a lot of papers coming in for energy. Okay, so you had oil go negative, and then you've got this director of Halliburton, a services company, which should be the last to recover because they do deep water stuff. He bought 350,000 shares of Halliburton Murray Gerber at $8.68. He spent $3 million out of pocket on, on those uh, shares this week. Uh, you think he's in it for a day trade for the next few weeks? No. The guy's going to be in it for three to five years. He's going to probably 5x his money. He'll make 15, 20 million bucks. Um, 